Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a guest to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason. We'll talk about what excites us, what engages us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll follow the poem and the conversation wherever they turn. Afterward, we will have a poetry game and a little bit of silliness. I'm so happy today to have Nikki Beer. Nikki is a bi-queer writer and the author of several collections of poetry, including, most recently, 2022's Real Phonies and Genuine Fakes from Milkweed Editions, which won the 2023 Lammy Award for Bisexual Poetry. It also has a fantastic cover design to go with really killer poems. So Nikki is also a Guggenheim Fellow. Her writing has appeared in Best American Poetry, Poetry, The Nation, The New Yorker, The Southern Review, Kenyon Review, and elsewhere. Nikki, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. I am so happy to be here, Charlie. Thank you for having me. Before we get to the poem that you brought in, can you talk a little bit about the cover of the book? Because it's really fantastic. Yes. On the cover, there is a double image of Dolly Parton that is rendered in kind of a pop art Andy Warhol fashion. And Milkweed is really wonderful. You know, they asked for my kind of input right away in terms of what I wanted the cover to look like. And I had thought because the first poem in the book is kind of about Dolly Parton and Dollywood, I thought, oh, I thought, oh, it's too much of a long shot Parton on the cover. I don't know legally how we do that. But I gave them uh, a pop art rendering of Dolly Parton that I had found online. And I said, you know, it, it, I know it's probably not what not feasible to have Dolly Parton on the cover, but this is the style. This is the spirit. And they came back with, uh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> and so they found another pop art image, you know, a Mary Austin speaker who is just a, a legend of a book designer had found this other pop art image. And I said, could we, could we double Dolly? Cause it was a single image. I think could we put a double image on there? And, and that's, you know, that's kind of the abbreviated story of the cover, but uh, you know, of course she did wonderful work with uh, the titles as well, but that's, that's, that's the story of the cover. And I really, I do love it <laughs> so much. It's really beautiful. And if any listeners go find it, uh, the cover's beautiful and, and the poems are fantastic too. So you've brought in Torin A. Greathouse's poem, Abbasidarian Requiring Further Examination Before a Diagnosis Can Be Determined, which I, I can't believe, <laughs> I, I'm not going to make it through this sentence, which is written, uh, it's modeled after Natalie Diaz's Abbasidarian Requiring Further Examination of an Anglican Seraphim Subjugation of a Wild Indian Reservation. Of all things, before you read the poem, can you quickly explain what an abecedarian is? Yes. So it is a form poem, and it is a 26-line poem, usually, in which every line begins with a different letter of the alphabet, and the lines are in alphabetical order. I think that I think that covers it, right? Yeah, I think so. And and occasionally someone will really load up a line with you know. the same letter they, these poems do not so yeah. they just they just start with each successive letter so whenever you're ready go ahead and read the poem all right abecedarian requiring further examination before a diagnosis can be determined by torin a great house antonym for me a medical book replace all the punctuation commas periods semicolons with question marks. Diagnosis is just apotheosis with sharper edges. New name for a myth already lived in. For the sake of thoroughness, I have given until my veins cratered. 
tests administered for HIV, cirrhosis, glucose, cancer, creatine, albumin, iron, platelets. I've slept for days, wired to machines. Had my piss filtered for stray proteins just to be safe. Still inside my body, kingdom with poisoned wells. I want anything but an elegy lining my bones. I just want to be a question this body can answer. My new doctor writes one referral, then another, still no guesses. A man in a scowl and lab coat offers yoga, more painkillers, suggests PTSD could be the cause of my chronic pain, my limp, of migraines, quickened pulse, and blood-glittered coughs, of seizures rattling me inside my skin, oh, syndrome of my perfect and unbroken transgender arm. They checked my hormones, too. Yes. Unfathomable. The suffering I did not choose. Must be gender, this vacancy my body makes of its own flesh. How I vanish from myself. We search for a beginning to this story and find only a history of breakage x-rays cannot explain. Some girls are not made, but spring from the dirt. Yearling tree already scarred from its branches severance. Zygote of red clay that rain washes into a river of blood. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Why did you choose this poem? It's from Great House's debut book, Wound from the Mouth of a Wound, which is a book that I love so much. It's incredibly uh, innovative and it's smart and it's incredibly complex. And I thinking of a, a poem to talk about with you and my and my I happen to fall on on this particular book. And I said, yeah, let's talk about a poem from this book because uh, you know I think I first read it when did it come out? I think the book came out something like 2020. And I thought, my God, have I really, you know, it's just one of those books that once you read it, you feel kind of your ideas about poetry and what it can mean. You feel yourself altered by it. And so that's, it's a really meaningful book to me. I really admire it. And so I was looking through the book and seeing, you know, because I've got about a million notes scribbled in there. And I said, yes, let's, let's, let's talk about that Abbasidarian because Greenhouse is doing so many amazing things with form in the book. And so this just kind of exemplifies all of the kind of amazing things they're, they're they're doing in that book. The thing that immediately pops out, I always enjoy Abyssidarians and also there's a challenge to them, like a special challenge. Like, and I'll go ahead and, and get to this question. The Q, X, and Z are always going to be oh, like, murder. we just, yeah. So <laughs> does that affect how you read either Abyssidarians in general or this poem in particular? I think on some level, and maybe it's more, because, you know, I have never successfully written an Abyssidarian. I think I've written some failed ones. And I think maybe an Abyssidarian where I'm not thinking about that, where I, where I don't have the, the, the QX anxiety in particular. And then I go back and I realize, oh, what did they do there? And, and like they've done it so gracefully that it's almost invisible, that that just kind of adds another layer of admiration that okay. I have for the poem. Um, because I think Abyssinians, when they're not done well, that you can just kind of you can feel the 
of how those issues mm-hmm. get addressed in the poem. I think it's a larger statement about poets and form as well, is that a poet really rocking a form is going to make the form invisible in a yeah. sense, where you forget about the form because you're so absorbed in the poem. I never have that distance with an Abbasidarian. I don't think that's a problem for me. And I think that she uses the Q and X and Z really well because the Mm -hmm. context of what she's writing about x-rays is a choice that makes a lot of sense. Zygote or zygote makes perfect Mm -hmm. sense in the poem. And so I kind of, I I have a little grin at the end in addition to the sort of emotional rush. It's like, this, this works. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that, that challenge that challenge ends up working. I wanted to include Great House's bio describes her and, and get your thoughts out. It begins, Torin A. Great House is a transgender cripple punk poet and essayist. Immediate thoughts about that, because this is a poem both about ableism and and uh, disability, and but and she chooses to use the word cripple in her, in her bio, and also being transgender as well. And there's a sort of mm-hmm. complex web of sort of how doctors are going to treat her because doctors have a tendency to treat women, to treat transgender people, to treat disabled people often differently and with a kind of easygoing cruelty, I guess. Sometimes the cruelty is not so easygoing, but I'm curious to to hear your thoughts about that. I think, and this, this is maybe kind of like something larger that I'm seeing as a poetry editor when I see submissions. I, I, I'm i one of the poetry editors for the journal Copper Nickel, which is published by the University of Colorado, Denver. And one of the things that I think I'm seeing more is when poets are writing their bios or making their bios available, that there is more of an assertion of identity in those bios. And I find that very exciting. Because I think there's, you know, there's still kind of this idea that he, your individuality is somehow supposed to be erased you in know. your bio, that it's very much kind of just the facts and that to have any kind of augmentation is somehow unprofessional. And of course, you know, there's all kinds of sort of very uh, white patriarchal ideas that prop up that that assumption. And so, you know, when I see poets, you know, asserting things about their identities, about their queerness about, say, uh, their disability or where they're from or their past or their history or their origins. I just, I get a little thrill about this. Yeah, you know, say that about yourself, you know, mm-hmm. claim claim that about yourself. And I'm not saying that everybody has to do this, right. but uh, I I love it when a, a poet is, is taking the bio as an opportunity to say, here I am, this is me, I'm making this available to you. And I reject this idea that somehow parts of my selfhood have to be edited out my bio. And so, you know, I very much appreciate that that's something that the Great House is doing there. And it's something that that I've chosen to do in my bio as well, you know, to start asserting that I am bi and queer in my bio. It's something that I started, that I I chose to do rather uh, a few years back, because especially bisexuality can be something that can be invisible in various ways in, in one's life. And so I wanted to put it more more front and, and center and make sure that if people are looking at that, you know, that if they see some kind of like queerness in my writing, that it's not something that they're projecting. It's not it's not some sort of mystery or some sort of like, yes, if you see queerness in my in my writing, you know, that's that's physical to you. You're you're not misreading anything. Yes. <laughs> I'm a bi writer, I'm a queer writer, and there it is. That's great. I know some people resist 
it, in part because they feel like the identity of the writer ends up being more important than the the poem itself, which I don't think is the right. case here. And with a lot of poems, the only the only resistance I have is that all I can say is identity wise is that I am boring. Um, <laughs> uh, also, I mean, I mean, disabled in terms of uh, chronic depression. Also, the thing I, w I wonder about, and this is only because I've noticed it coming up sometimes in classes with students who don't know a lot of poetry, is that there can be a tendency for people to to just narrow their reading of a poet mm -hmm. of a poet based on bio. Everybody does with this with Plath and Dickinson, and yeah, to the point that it's like, oh, Plath is suicidal, and then you give them a you know, any one of the poems that are joyful and playful. And they're like, what is this? Uh, and Dickinson too. I don't find that uh, we've gone on kind of a side route. I don't find this to be an issue with this poem. I actually appreciate the way, although I read the poem first, I appreciate the way that the bio actually informs my reading of the poem here, particularly crippled punk. Have you encountered that phrase before? I haven't, but so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all I can say. No, no, I haven't. Um, yeah, so I so I teach a disability class sometimes, and I've read this phrase before, and had not really come across a lot of definitions. There, are, so a lot of disabled writers will use "crip" as uh, an adjective or sometimes as a verb. And "cripple punk" here, it's the I pulled a definition from a, a disability website. It's basically about rejecting pity and inspiration porn and other forms of ableism and particularly rejects the whole mythos of the the quote-unquote good cripple. And what's interesting to me teaching the disability class is that almost all the personal writing from essays to poems that I teach, going way back to the 70s, in a way they all feel like cripple punk in that they are all sort of either implicitly or really explicitly challenging that idea of, of the, the idea, the sort of condescending idea of, oh, this is the good cripple. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's it strikes me as a kind of a cousin of queering as a verb. The yeah. idea that when you queer something, you are trying to interrogate or undermine uh, the status quo, and mm -hmm. so I, I those two ideas seem to be very uh, close to one another in terms of their 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 ideals, their motivations. I think of kind of DIY with punk, like the kind of messiness that goes with punk. And what's mm -hmm. interesting is yeah. this poem I don't feel like has that. And that's not a criticism of the poem. I love the poem, but it, it's, I'm curious if you see that in here and if I'm missing something or if there's like, there's something like had my piss filtered words like piss bring a little bit of that. Well, no, you actually, no, I, I see, I see a lot of punk energy in, in the poem. And I think a punk yeah. attitude in the poem because punk is it punk, the term punk itself, you know, is a kind of reclamation of, of an insult, so mm -hmm. to speak. And, you know, punk itself, the idea of something being punk is about something that is unruly. And in terms of this particular poem, the speaker is essentially addressing how the unruliness of their body uh, gets treated by medical professionals, by uh, the healthcare industry. And you know, I think it's, I think that the moment is really crystallized where we have on the one hand, the speaker saying, I just want to be a question, this body can answer. And then a little bit later, a man in a scowl and a lab coat offers yoga, more painkillers. And there's something about the scowl and the lab coat that speaker is not disabled because they're trying to be difficult. In mm -hmm. other words, like, hey, I want answers too. But that this moment with the person with the scowl and the lab coat, it, it, I think embodies these moments where people 
can be treated by medical professionals like they're just being difficult. And I think you know, you're talking about women, queer folks, um, gender nonconforming folks, trans folks, and people in black and brown bodies. They, mm-hmm. That the way that they can often be dismissed or trivialized or treated as uh, oh, non-compliant. I think that's a word that professionals like use. That they can be treated as non-compliant when they advocate for themselves, when they assert themselves, when they don't accept a certain kind of condescending, minimizing. So I do think that there that there is kind of a punk energy that essentially simply by living in say you know a body with disabilities that can't be diagnosed or solved that they're immediately perceived as unruly by medical professionals. So, so yeah. And I, and I, and I think the way that the poem interrogates power, I think is also very punk as well. And that comes through in the first sentence to me. What's interesting is when I first read the poem is I read the first sentence antonym for me, a medical book antonym somehow being used as a verb here. And there is a part of me that's like, okay, I'm, I'm getting ready for a poem with complicated syntax with really surprising choices and there's something confrontational about about that the only thing that carries through from that is the sort of directive replace all the punctuation otherwise the sentences are all very straightforward and i like that we get this kind of challenge in a way to the reader and then are kind of welcomed in in a different way antonym for me a medical book it's just such a great surprising sentence i always love when a writer takes a word and, and puts it into a different a different category like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's I think that also speaks to how the adversarian form is is working here in this poem and I think also in in Natalie Diaz's poem as well. You know, this we have this poem that's driven by the alphabet, right? And it's one of the most basic forms of certainty, bigger quotes around that in language. It's an embodiment of the lang- of our language's most basic rules. We're indoctrinated into this this form as babies, sometimes even before we can speak in complete words <laughs> ourselves. But of course, the reality of language is that it is slippery, it's constantly changing or evolving, and it's often untrustworthy. And I think this is a useful way to think about the practice of medicine. It seems to be something stable and objective. But it too is constantly changing and it's often driven by the prejudices and privileges of its practitioners. So, and language and medicine embody power in ways that can be invisibly nefarious. So, uh, you know, I love that, you know, we have this al- the alphabet as form here, something that is supposed to be very orderly and predictable too. And yet it is about kind of like this body, which is air quotes around this, you know, disordered and unpredictable yeah. and not submitting to a kind of um orderliness um yeah. that i think that that i think that medical professionals would prefer it's this arbitrary order that we treat as not arbitrary and there are all kinds of examples of this in medicine uh mentioning black and brown bodies for example there are lots of diagnostic tools and non-diagnostic tools at times the doctors use that Either. actually don't apply so like uh, body mass index, for example, which is a terrible non-diagnostic tool to begin with, does not apply at all to black people. It's just like it does not work the same way as it does for white people. Part of this has to do with medical testing. Part of it has to do with how BMI was created. Same with uh, pulse oximeters, finger pulse oximeters re- register darker skin differently and mm-hmm. and so give you different numbers. And so I like that this poem chooses the form that feels certain and is arbitrary at its core to talk about Mm. something that often feels certain and is arbitrary at its core. I think my favorite line that in a way gets at that, and 
I hadn't read the poem aloud to myself yet, which I usually do. And hearing you read it aloud, I, I heard just how rich the, the sound is. HIV, cirrhosis, glucose, okay. cancer, creatine, albumin, iron, platelets. It has that the iams and the kind of the alternating stresses and the sounds are really rich the way they move through the line. And that's that's a consequence of how those are put together. And it's 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 great houses and not arbitrary, but her choice. And that but in a way, at times, some of these choices, as she gets at later in the poem, seem like arbitrary choices on the doctor's part, especially when it gets to, oh, they check my hormones too, must be gender. This idea that these choices, that even the idea of being transgendered, that that is for a lot of people, it seems like an arbitrary choice when it is when it is not. I, I feel like arbitrariness and order are the two words that kind of get at a lot of what the poem is really interested in. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think there, there's a line, uh, we search for a beginning to the story and find only a history of breakage x-rays cannot explain. And these actually, these lines echo the opening lines of the book. I don't want to speak about the beginning of this story. And so that's from the poem um, Medusa with the head of Perseus. And this points to a recurring idea in the book that we can overly depend on narratives to explain ourselves or or other people. And that this is analogous to how the medical profession can perceive our bodies. Do doctors are looking for stories to answer what is problematic about us. Uh, and God help us if they can't find the story that satisfies them. And so, you know, while stories can be valuable, they can be healing, they can also be toxic when they're treated like just the answer to a problem. And so this kind of resistance, the speaker's resistance here, this poem and in the book as a whole, this resistance to some sort of narrative that's going to explain everything. That That's something that I, I, I really value in this poem as well. Yeah, because narrative itself is arbitrary where we choose those beginning and ending points. And medicine, ideally from the point of view of medicine, can point to a beginning, can point to a cause. It reminds me of the Simpsons episode where, where uh, Marge is, she has a phobia of flying and eventually goes to therapy and the core memory is she, her, her dad is, turns out is a flight attendant and she's deeply embarrassed by it. But then she goes on to have all these other memories about planes and the therapist is like, nope, it's just the father. It's just the father. <laughs> it's like this. Right. It turns out her, her, her entire childhood has actually been, it's not just her father being a flight attendant. Her entire childhood has been littered with these plane related yeah. problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> The important thing is that we've pinpointed the precise moment when you developed your fear of flying. Wait, some other stuff's coming back to me. You think those things could also have contributed to my fear of flying? Yes, yes, it's all a rich tapestry. And a narrative can be useful in that it can help us create for ourselves the shape of something that helps us understand something that is otherwise not completely comprehensible, but there's also a pro there are problems with narratives, particularly when those narratives are being given from outside, which is the case when we're going to see doctors, which, by the way, just just to, to note, I go to doctors. I generally trust doctors. I'm not trying to say all doctors are bad. <laughs> not all doctors. I'm not all doctors seeing this poem, which now I feel like an idiot about. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, and I just, I want to agree with you on that as well. You know, I have depression and anxiety as well, and I have been helped by doctors in many ways. But I, there, I have also had encounters with doctors that have been very, uh, very disappointing, to 
put it mildly. I don't, I don't know what your experience has been or conversations that you've had with other people, but there is a way in which, for example, you get a bunch of women about my age to sit down. And if you just start saying to them, tell me about a time where a doctor said something to you that really pissed you off or completely ignored about what you were de describing about your own experience in your body, you will get some very hair-raising anecdotes. And, you know, I've had several women friends who have had near fatal conditions mm -hmm. misdiagnosed because uh, their doctors were not listening to them or were dismissing their symptoms. And, and so, you know, it, it really can become a kind of life or death thing when you don't feel that you're being listened to or you're being discounted because of your race or because of your gender or because of your fatness or any one of those, uh, you know, particular things that makes you seem less, uh, less reliable um, as a patient. So yes, I'm very grateful to the doctors who have helped me, but I also recognize the ways in which doctors can, because of their own personal um, prejudices, can do real harm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I'm a tall white male. I've not had to face. I've yeah. I've seen bad doctors, but their 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 badness had nothing to do with my identity or presentation. And and that's very much the case when I teach the disability class. Even the eighteen year old students, both male but mostly female, express, "Yeah, I've experienced this from a doctor." And what's interesting is to have the students who read essays about doctors treating people like that and they're kind of shocked by it because they've never had that experience but most of them uh the, again the female students the minority or minoritized students are like oh yeah yeah i've encountered this plenty we've we've talked i feel like in a way around the poem a lot but we i'm also enjoying the conversation are there things in the poem you want to focus on or mention i just just looking through this last night and there was a jam that that I hadn't noticed before. I thought, oh, that's really good. And it's it's very small and it's very understated, but I just love it. Or rather, it's kind of like a moment in the poem. It's not just the enjambment. It's when the speaker says, for the sake of thoroughness, I have given until my veins cratered. And so that's a, that's a single sentence in the poem. It covers two lines. Mm -hmm. And for those listening at home, the word thoroughness is italicized in a way which in terms of poetic conventions can suggest dialogue. But there's something about the way the word is italicized that also suggests a kind of euphemism, yeah, you know, where the speaker is saying, is bringing up all these times where uh, a doctor or medical profession say, oh, we just want to be thorough. We just want to be thorough. And it's like that that's kind of a fake leaf on the doctor saying, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Just want to be thorough. And that's kind of like a cover for the doctor being afraid to say, I don't know. And so I, I, lo I, I love that kind of analyzation. You know, it uses an excuse to administer more and more tests and treatments when they fail to diagnose. And right after that, we have this moment of enjambment where for the sake of thoroughness, I have, and then the line breaks. And when I have, which suggests ownership, possession, and then that's immediately undone by the next line when the sentence continues and the phrase becomes, I have given, <laughs> which becomes a, a lack, a giving away. And so it's just yeah, such a smart, it's why it's why enjambment is exciting. Yeah. The moment like that where enjambment can undo something that the line before it did. And then, I'm sorry, just, I'm just, I'm picking apart this one sentence, but I got really obsessed with it. And then you have, I have given 
and then until my veins have cratered. So we're given the image of the smallness of the human vein, which is then perversely warped by its proximity to the image of the crater, which we associate with a, a large depression in a landscape. And so it's kind of like a mismatch of scale here that's deliberately uncomfortable <laughs> and therefore becomes more visceral. And so, you know, to, to sort of take a step back and say, look what they're doing in just a single sentence in this poem. And that, I think, that just kind of embodies, uh, I think, sorry, I'll, I'll go for the pun, Greathouse's greatness as a, as a poet. <laughs> That's great. I, I think I, I love that attention that you've given this, especially veins cratered. And there's also the Pardon? I have, it's that sort of conversational as if she's about to list, I have condition, condition, condition. And but that's not yes. where it goes. And part of that is, I wish in a way for a world where sometimes I could look at poems and not see the whole thing before I read it, because your eye gets drawn to certain things. And the, I saw HIV and PTSD, and so seeing the line HIV cirrhosis very quickly, my eye sort of sees I have, and and just doesn't doesn't clock that until I read the poem. And here it yeah. seems maybe possibly deliberate that you see that I have. And then this list, but that list is actually not explanatory because it ends up being test administered for. Yeah. And I, I, I always love when a poet is playing with us in terms of like how we're going to read a poem and how we're going to take in lines when we're going to assume a rhythm and when the poet wants to disrupt that and, and violate that yeah. as well. Yeah. One, one last note, the poem asked very early on, replace all punctuation with question marks and there's not a question mark in the poem, which I like. Because it gives it kind of uh, yes. declarative, declarative mode. Every sentence, I believe, ends with a period. And so every sentence ends up being declarative. I'm so glad you brought in this poem. I will also link to the Natalie Diaz poem in the show notes, which is very different in a way, but I like very much as well. Sorry, there's one more thing I wanted to talk about in terms of the poem. Um, just It's just this moment um, later in the poem when the speaker says, oh, syndrome of my perfect and unbroken transgender arm. And so I love this moment where the speaker seems to be associating their transness, their trans body with perfection. Okay. Whereas the other things about her body may be the subject of constant scrutiny of the medicalized gaze, but her transness to her is without question it is whole and it is concrete and so it's just it's just this beautiful moment in the poem and i didn't i didn't want to let this discussion end without us just taking a moment for that oh yeah i actually have that in my notes because of the phrase transgender arm choosing arm really mm -hmm. finishes that off the idea that i don't generally other than unless we're looking at muscled versus unmuscled arms generally we don't there, there's not a sexualization or gender identity of arms. And so having it be transgender arm, there's something about it that I think draws our attention to the ways in which we are in and feel our bodies dependent on certain categories of, of self and identity. Yeah. And people who maybe are either misinformed, ignorant or transphobic, that they simply there are people who see transness as simply like a question of genitals. Yeah. And, it, you know, it can be uh, a reductive and even, you know, hateful way to perceive transness rather than a question of selfhood, that it is, that it, that it is an embodiment, that it is a question of the self, of the body, of the soul, of the spirit. So, yeah, you know, locating the transness in the arm, mm -hmm. you know, that that's 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 a resistance to kind of all of these uh, narratives of, of, of transphobia and ignorance about what what the trans body is. Yeah. 
That's great. Well, let's move on to the silliness. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, silliness. Yeah, but before we get to the game, we do have an ad. Poets, everyone knows you have the most exhausting job. Not only are poets the unacknowledged legislators of the world, they have to forge in the smithies of their souls the uncreated conscious of their race. So you need to stay hydrated. But Powerade and Gatorade are just too sports-centric, and they don't give you the zing that you need to keep riding. Fear not. The answer is here, created by parent company Well Red Bull. Bish. Named for Percy Bish Shelley, Bish will quench thy thirst and thy fiery tears. It brings fresh showers for you thirsting flowers. Art thou pale for weariness of climbing heaven and gazing on the earth? Then throw back a 20 ounce of Bish. Now, Bish doesn't have electrolytes per se, per se, per se, but it'll keep your mind and your pen moving. Even if you've been traveling through the desert from an antique land, one gulp of Bish will have you ready to scream, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. I've been out of the corner of my eye, I have seen. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's... <laughs> I do have to give my, my wife a hat tip for steering me towards Percy Shelley. Uh, my original idea for the ad was for Frankenstein's monster energy drink. All right, on to the game. Why do I have a Nero, why do I have a feeling that you came up with the idea of the silly ads first and then you just built the podcast around those? You know, kinda in a way. <laughs> well, no, the thing is so, yeah, I've listened to some poetry podcasts and you know, I enjoy them. I want more whimsy in them, in part because I'm a child and in part because there's at times I think a solemnity around poetry. And and I mentioned this, I was talking about this with John Lennon not not the Beatle. Uh, a, a few episodes ago, we were, we listened to a recording of uh, Russell Edson reading a poem, and there are all these funny lines. But like a lot of poetry readings, when someone will say something funny, there's this kind of hesitation to laugh because it's a, there's the solemnity of a poetry reading. So I get to make the puns here, so my wife doesn't have to hear as many of them. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that's and I, I don't know if you're familiar with Breaking Form podcast, uh, James Allen Hall and Aaron Smith. But that's 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 another podcast that brings in uh, games and whimsy that I oh. I really admire. And I think what you what you what you say about it that it, you know reading sometimes the audience doesn't know whether or not they're allowed to laugh. And you know because I have a lot of jokes and humor in my poetry, I'm I'm often trying to like send an audience signals right away to say yes, it's okay, <laughs> <laughs> you can laugh. I find it easier in a venue where alcohol be served. On to the game today. In honor of you, Nikki Beer, we're playing a game that I am calling In Memory of W.B. Yeast. It's a simple game. I'm going to give you a title, and you have to tell me whether it's a poem by W.B. Yeats or the name of an Irish beer. Even when I lose, I'm still going to win somehow. Oh, absolutely. Any questions before we play? Uh, no, sir. Let's do it. All right, Nikki Beer, let's play In Memory of W.B. Yeast. Number one. The madness of King Gaul. Is that a beer or is that Yates? I'm going to say a beer. That's Yates. Dang it. <laughs> By the way, you have to imagine me like going between tabs with like the table of contents of, of the collected Yates because my copy is was at school and it's break and like a, a tab with like beer names from Ireland. All right. Next. Number two. Black Rock. Is that a beer or is that Yates? The audio didn't come through there. You say, did you say Yates? I did say Yates. Okay. 
it is a beer. It's an Irish stout from Dungarvan, Dungarvan Brewing Company. My apologies to them for probably mispronouncing it twice. Number three, Sheep Stealer. Is that a beer or is that Yates? Trick question. It's both. That would be great, actually. I couldn't find a Yates poem called Sheep Stealer. It's a traditional Irish farmhouse ale from Black Donkey. <laughs> uh, we got we got three more. Number <laughs> four, the Rose, the Rose of Battle. Is that a beer or is that Yates? Yates. That is Yates. All what? right. We're on the board. <laughs> number five. Number five, Woodcock. Is that a beer or is that Yates? I don't know. The, again, the audio didn't come but, through. Well, okay. The last time the audio didn't come through, I was wrong. So if I is it the audio that's trying to save me? Um, maybe. Maybe. All right. Yates. That is a beer. It's a fruity uh, ale from White Pipsy. And finally, number six. I've got a good feeling about this one. Number six, McGargle's Francis Bangin' IPA. Is that a beer or is that Yates? It, it, it better be Yates, but if it, I mean, it better be a beer, but if it Yates, then he's uh, a lot cooler than I, than I thought he was. <laughs> he does have the poem Drinking Song, which starts Wine Comes In at the Mouth, and my original title for the game was Beer Comes In at the Mouth, but then that just sounds wrong to me. So I changed it to In Memory of WBEs. So, Nikki, thank you so, so much for being here. Is there anything you want to say or plug before we go? Gosh, uh, I just, yeah, uh, real phonies and genuine fakes out on Milkweed. Buy yourself a copy or get a copy from the library or just listen to a, a Dolly Parton song uh, in, in honor of the cover. Yes, listen to Jolene and then find the version of Jolene that slowed down to 33 RPMs, which is fantastic. It, it, it It's great on its own and also helps you appreciate just how good her vocal is. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. Go have a great day. Read some poems, pet some dogs, and support striking workers wherever you find them. Bye. <laughs>